Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to The Political Party. Today's episode features Stuart McDonald, the SNP's defence spokesperson. I've been meaning to get Stuart on for ages because he's a really good laugh. He's brilliant on social media. And he's been very strong in this area of defence and misinformation, tackling fake news and being outspoken about um, perhaps certain individuals in certain communities who've ended up broadcasting on certain channels. We'll talk about that in more specifics uh, in the interview. He's also written a brilliant report, Disinformation in Scottish Public Life, which is a great read. It's also a short read, so I've put a link to that in the blurb, so you can click on that and read that. I reckon in a cup of tea or two. If you have one of those big Sports Direct mugs, you could probably um, drink a whole one of those. Mind you, you could. they'd last you all day, wouldn't they? The point is, compared to some reports, it's, it's, <laughs> it's short and a good read. It's well written. So we talk about that report. Um, before we come on to, in more detail as to what I talk about with Stuart, don't forget you can email the show politicalpartypodcast at gmail.com with your unusual encounters of politicians, with politicians or strange places you've seen them. And in this conversation with Stuart, I put an idea to him towards the end, which indeed, if it comes to fruition or fruitation, as Glenn Hoddle would say, um, then maybe if you live somewhere in Glasgow, you will be emailing me in a few years' time with a very strange story of what the SNP's defence spokesperson has got up to. More on that in a second. But Thomas Devlin has been in touch. He says, my awkward encounter was with the current First Minister of Wales, Mark Drakeford, during the Newport West by-election. I was a student in Wales at the time and was called in to help. As usual, the politicians like to join in campaigning for the first few roads, the obligatory group picture holding a Labour placard. Mark then needed to leave as it was the same time as Chinese New Year. I rather awkwardly walked back with him to the car. I was chatting to him and I wondered what it was like being the first minister. As we were walking back, I attempted to make a joke. Oh my God. The tension of a, a kind of young activist attempting a joke with uh, a senior politician is already making me tense, Thomas. I asked him, as it was the year of the pig, whether David Cameron would be there. Thomas, that is a great joke. It took him a while to get the joke, but once he did, he had the cheekiest grin. Thomas, you did nothing wrong there. That was a good joke. It was the right joke to make at the right time. Um, Perhaps just took Mark, it sounds like a beat to understand what you were getting at. But I like to think that the best jokes often do start with a prolonged period of silence. In fact, some of mine, Thomas, are still in that silent period. I'm waiting any day now for laughs from back in 2017 to still get what they deserve. But there we are. Um, so Stuart McDonald, who I, uh, I follow on social media, is one of the people in the SNP community that I follow a lot and follow what he says. And he's written this report, Disinformation in Public Life. We talk about that report. We also talk about the broader impact of what an independent Scotland would mean for uh, the breakup of the UK, what people like Vladimir Putin would like to see in the world, 
Uh, and the challenges that would face an independent Scotland in attaining things like NATO membership and also a discussion about nuclear weapons and how the best way to achieve a nuclear world, uh, what the best way is to achieve a nuclear world. I began by asking Stuart why he'd written this report now. Well, I think, as you know, Matt, because I know you follow every word I say and write and tweet, uh, I've been talking about disinformation for some time now. Um, and, you know, it's always, I mean, I've been to a million, you know, seminars and conferences and read 100,000 papers on this stuff. And they largely all say the same thing, uh, mine included. But where it gets harder is, well, what do we do about it, right? Absent of any kind of big... Um, multilateral framework on social media regulation and you know other bits what do you actually do to help the end target of disinformation they are my constituents they are the public how do you help them uh, so the paper in, in the first part uh, and you've read it so you'll know is about well, what does this look like how does disinformation in scotland manifest itself um who's who's doing what and then the second bit which is the shortest bit, but it's the most important bit, is, well, how do you deal with this? What are the solutions? So having talked about it for a lot, I felt it was time to write something that puts some solutions forward and sketched out uh, a picture as I see it as to what the problem is. I mean, look, it's, it's, it's a short paper. It's by no means a wholesale audit of what's going on in Scotland or a full-scale strategy for dealing with it. I just want to kick off a, a discussion on it. So that's why I chose to do it. Um, and I would have done it, you know, it would have been done a lot earlier had there not been COVID and an early general election and Brexit and all the rest of it. But I'm happy with how it's been received. It's by no means perfect. There's still stuff to do for sure. What's really interesting about it, and the report is fantastic. There's a link to it in the blurb so listeners can download and read it. Um, is also actually, you just realised that basically you've kind of driven into this space on your own, that you've, this is a passion of yours. I guess it falls under your brief, but... Disinformation is one of those things that I guess any number of your colleagues could have claimed to have owned as part of their brief. It doesn't naturally sit anywhere. That's something you talk about in the report and the need for governments to address and have specific individuals overlooking these things. But did anyone else say, whoa, 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 hang on, Stuart, that doesn't come under defence. You know, I'm the Home Affairs spokesman and really that, that should be my remit. Well, that would have been the other Stuart McDonald, so that would have got interesting. No, I mean, look, I think there's a... I, I, you're right. I mean, the, the part of the problem, and this is actually identified in the Russia report from last year, is that as far as countering not just disinformation, but other various hybrid non-military threats, you know, responsibility lies as a bit of a patchwork in different government departments. So, you know, the MOD claims responsibility for countering disinformation, the Home Office does to a certain extent. The Department for Culture, Media and Sport responsible for countering misinformation. Uh, the security services have a role to play in this stuff. So it is a bit of a patchwork. So I just decided, you know, my view, Matt, is do it until someone tells you to stop. Right? And nobody's <laughs> to stop. So that's why I did it. Hopefully people listening to this aren't now going to tell you to stop. It'd be a shame if this put an end to uh, such a brilliant piece of work. But there I are might some... get a call from Blackford, who knows? <laughs> <laughs> you know. There are some uh, really interesting lines in there. And right at the start, you kind of address it. Um, that uh, There's a great line at the, at the start where you say, disinformation poses an urgent threat to all free and open societies, and Scotland is no uh, exception. However, as other countries think seriously about how to combat hostile disinformation campaigns, Scotland has been uncharacteristically moot on the subject. 
Why do you think that is? I, I have no idea. I mean, you, you know Scotland well. We love an argument. <laughs> uh, and we love a debate about just about anything. But on this one, um, I, th- I think it's... Uh, I, I don't think... It, I don't think it's a specifically Scottish thing. I think there have been large chunks of um, the population, both in Scotland and elsewhere, who have just thought that this is a thing for other people to think. You know, it's maybe a, an American thing because of Trump. Uh, it's maybe a, 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 a Ukrainian thing because of what's happening with Russia there or, or whatever. And it's not something for us. I think there's been a general basking in a false sense of security. I think what the pandemic has done uh, is shown that that's not the case. Uh, so both before and since we had a vaccine, disinformation is something that everyone will have come across. I mean, who hasn't come across a COVID conspiracy theory more than once, right? You know, whether that was way back at the start of the pandemic that somehow, you might remember before lockdown actually happened, but in that kind of week to 10 days before it happened, we all knew something was coming. We just weren't quite sure what. And there were all these conspiracy theories doing their own that, you know, the army were amassing outside Glasgow or outside Leicester or, you know, every town and city had this conspiracy theory. And that was at the time where supermarket shelves were starting to go empty, fresh food was hard to get, toilet paper was hard to get, hand sanitizer and soap were hard to get. Now, am I saying that that specific conspiracy theory caused those things? No. Um, but did it contribute to a general sense of panic and fear? Yes, along with a multitude of other conspiracy theories uh, that were doing the rounds. So I think what the pandemic has shown people is that actually we do need to get smarter before we forward things on in WhatsApp groups, retweet things, share things on Facebook, just verify the information uh, that we're getting. And then if you add into that, and the report talks uh, a bit about a combination of a pandemic and people being at home, all the time on screens and for a lot of people at home by themselves where you can just, you know, society gets stuck in this constant feedback loop of, of self-affirming view and opinion, a lot of which is just entirely false. I wonder if some of it as well isn't so much about America and Ukraine and Russia, but perhaps about the way we organise things in the UK that people in Scotland might think, oh, well, that sounds like a kind of home office thing. That's the sort of thing that, that us, you know, security and intelligence feels like a London thing. And therefore, you know, and, and not whether that's a positive or a negative judgment, that that's just kind of where yeah. even just because of like culture, like James Bond and stuff like that, you go, oh, that's what those guys near the Thames do. You know, is there perhaps an element of that? There's a, I think there's an important point in there. And, and I, as I say in the foreword to the paper, you know, I, I, it, it takes no view, quite deliberately takes no view on on. Uh, the constitution or party politics, it needs to be above that because whether you're a gnat like me or a unionist like you, this is a threat that Scotland faces, right? And and if Scotland voted yes in 2014, it would still face it. And it voted no in 2014 and we face it today. So it's a threat that Scotland faces that we need to address. Um, I've written previously earlier in the year that, you know, we have a situation where the UK government, uh, to its shame, will not implement all the recommendations of the Russia report. So I would challenge the Scottish government to say, well, what bits can we implement then? What can we take from the Russia report that helps secure democracy in Scotland? And the Welsh should do the same, right? And, and Andy Burnham should do the same. I know he's not flavour of the month. And, he should pick and, up uh, the phone and tell him, Stuart. Certain sections of Scotland right now. 
but I think there's a point here. It's where it's it's not just a Scottish thing. We're thinking, no, that's for London to do. I think loads of people are thinking that public sector, private sector, civil society, uh, the public at large. It's it's a thing for other people, and it's not. And so long as we approach it like it's a thing for other people, then much to the advantage of anybody who wants to, you know, any adversary who wants to run a disinformation campaign that could harm us, and we leave ourselves open for that happening continuously if we just leave it to other people. And the point you make there, and it comes, we're sort of leaping forward to one of your recommendations, one of the case studies that you cite is Sweden, having a whole society approach to disinformation, is actually, as citizens, it's not even about devolved administrations. As individuals, as citizens, we have a responsibility to not forward things on, to be able to spot... um, misinformation and not share it to be savvy about the sorts of things we do and don't listen to and share so actually thinking of this as like any government issue actually is not un well it's not as constructive as it could be i mean in a way the best way to guard against all this stuff is to have a really educated country that doesn't need to rely on the government to filter this stuff out and that's what the swedes and the finns and the latvians have all understood you know they have a high level of of public information resilience because it's taught from a very young age. It's accessible. You know, you need to reach people who are who are not in traditional education structures. Uh, that's why the report talks about how certain membership organisations are uniquely placed to do some of this stuff. Political parties, churches, and other faith groups, trade unions, big members, the National Trust. You know, whatever it might be. <laughs> Where if we had, for example, an annual clean information day that everyone had buy into and everyone could get resources, where we could reach out and train fellow citizens in how to spot bad information, uh, how to boost good information, particularly important during a pandemic. And it's, it's, as you say, it's about that understanding that we all have a part to play. And even more, and perhaps we'll get into this, even more interesting is that this is very much identified as a national security issue. So if you go to a country like Sweden who follow what's called the total defense concept, issues around health and human and information security are not separate to hard security and hard defense in the way that we would traditionally uh, understand it because the threat picture has evolved and those who weaponize things like disinformation are getting more sophisticated, they're spending more cash, there are more private sector Um, actors doing this stuff all over the world. We need to adapt to that. When the next pandemic strikes, which it will at some stage, do we want to go into it with the 2021 toolkit or do we want to go into it with a toolkit that's fit for the times we'll find ourselves in? I mean, imagine what, imagine COVID happened 25 years from now. What would the disinformation around that look like? So we always need to be forward thinking. You hint at deep fake. I mean, you hint at you explicit about the use of deep fakes in your report. I still don't think people have caught on to the huge potential for deep fakes to do real harm. I mean, we're talking about being able to genuinely fake highly realistic videos of literally anyone you want and make it sound like they're saying things or indeed doing things or whatever. I mean, the potential for that doesn't just affect celebrities or leaders. That will affect individuals, private citizens. It will be impossible 100%. for people to know. It, it, people always think of this stuff in terms of like statecraft and the Russians and stuff. But at its most pernicious, actually, it's it's when it affects everyday people. Is You could put something on Twitter claiming to be the bloke who drinks down the Rose and Crown. Do you know what I mean? Like the, the chaos you could bring to people's lives with stuff like that. 
A hundred percent. So there's an app. I don't know if you've seen it. I can't remember the name of it now. There's an app that uh, someone showed me a few months ago, uh, earlier this year, where you you can put a photograph onto it. So I can put a picture of you on there, and I can choose from the photograph what song I want you to sing. Oh yes, um, yes, yes. Have you seen this? App? Right, yeah, it's now, like Britney, and then it's something else. Yeah, yeah. Or you know, YMC or whatever it might be. Whatever's on your now, playlist at the moment. Yes. Now you think about that, right? It's I looked at it, it's obviously a fake video that it produces, right? But the quality is decent enough for something that you can just download on your iPhone for two quid. So if you've got a state behind you making that kind of stuff, or even if, again, think forward 10 years from now, five years from now, how high quality will it be for punters just to get on their phones and it becomes you know, widely, freely available to people? The chaos you can run will be incredible. And you're right, the impact on individual lives um, can be terrible. And we don't, we don't think about that often enough. And I think that, you know, thinking about it from my industry in, in politics, how are we going to deal with this when this inevitably pops up from a, from a campaigning uh, point of view? And I think this is where I would say one of the things I, I kind of reference in the report is that political parties have a job to do and starting to think about how do we deal with a disinformation campaign? I'm thinking particularly of the responsibility we have as, as you know, the Scott Nats who want another independence referendum, which will inevitably be targeted by either domestic or, 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 or foreign actors to interfere in that. How do we deal with that, whether that's for our outcome or against our outcome? I think it's really important parties start to almost kind of war game this kind of stuff and work out what do we do if X happens? I mean, imagine that. I mean, think politics on Twitter is just uh, so bad anyway. But with deep fakes that you can make it look realistic that say Nicola Sturgeon was at a rally and said this and it was fake. And then Nicola Sturgeon has to come out and go, no, 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 it's a deep fake. And loads of people go, oh, yeah. That, uh, you know, it's yeah. going everyone then is going to be using like the deep fake excuse. No one's going to know whether it's a deep. How do you then prove it's not you if it looks really realistic? And you what you then have is a complete breakdown in, in trust and democratic yeah. norms. And it benefits no one. I mean, again, in, in, in the report, you'll see it references polling that was carried out. In Scotland, 40% of people don't think that elections are free or fair. Now, you and I know they are free and fair. But if you've got 40% of people who, who think that's not the case, what an amazing attack point if you want to go and sow you know, a level of distrust that could be really crippling to a democracy. Um, it's, it's, it, we don't even talk about that in, in Scottish politics. We know that uh, the American election was targeted. Um, we know that Brexit was. 2014 is a really interesting case study for so much stuff, particularly online. Um, and as you say, the Russia report, as you say in your report, the Russia report basically doesn't really say. It kind of says that it was, but and it's the same with the Brexit referendum. They're like, oh, we think it happened, but we didn't really look, so uh, that's it. You know, it's quite an unsatisfying yeah. conclusion. Yeah, there's a couple of things I would say on this. Um, the, the, the report uh, references, if you, I know it's unfashionable to go into the footnotes in these things, but if you go into the footnotes where it talks about 2014, references a report that I had been talking about for a long time. I remember reading it, it was written by Ben Nimmo, and it talks about how the interference that did happen, the Russian interference that did happen, actually came after the vote itself had taken place. It was all about sowing doubt on the result, as opposed to much 
that was there to try and affect the outcome. Um, will that be the same next time round? No, of course it won't. Only a, only a fool would believe that. That being said, I think the fact that on that and on Brexit, you know, you rightly say if you if the government the government didn't look didn't instruct the security services to go and look, that then just creates a vacuum for conspiracy theories and disinformation to thrive. So one of the recommendations I have in the report is that the government should inform Parliament of the threat picture over the previous 12 months. Uh, clearly, there will be things that they can't disclose publicly. I think everybody would understand that. But much in the same way that the government provides, I think it's six monthly updates on counter-Daesh operations that the UK is engaged in, let's have one on disinformation. Let's, let's give a level of transparency to the issue that's currently missing and is actually eroding public trust to the point where 40% of people in Scotland don't think elections are free or fair. I don't know what the corresponding figure is elsewhere in the UK, but I am not cool with that, right? I am not cool with that. And I, I make the point again that even if Scotland was already independent, it's in our interests for our nearest neighbour who we share an island with to get this stuff right as much as we would have to get it right. Your closest, oldest friend that will always Indeed. be by your side regardless of uh, election or referendum outcomes. Um Sputnik set up in Edinburgh in the wake of the 2014 referendum. They've already gone home. So um, yeah. you can take some heart from the fact that a Russian disinformation service thought perhaps for a period of time Scotland might be fertile ground. And I guess by their own uh, you know, <laughs> admission, it hasn't turned out to be. So I guess there's some heart to take from that. Yeah, I'd love to. I, I am going to claim some credit for that. Not all of it, but I'll claim some of it. I think, you know, the. I remember talking to, so in Sweden, they have the Swedish Civil Contingency Authority who are there to help deal with um, all manner of things, uh, uh, you know, shock weather events, cyber attacks, attacks on critical national infrastructure, whatever it might be. And they also have an office for countering disinformation, which was set up, I think, about just over two years ago now. Uh, and that's there to coordinate how you counter disinformation across the entire, all of the various arms of the Swedish state and private sector. And I remember talking to the guy who runs it. He came to London to do a talk. And Sputnik similarly had, had closed uh, in, in Stockholm. And I remember saying to him, I said, you know, and this was before this, the Scottish closure. And I asked, you know, what happened there? Like, how did that come about? Uh, and quite literally, he said, Swedish is a really hard language to translate to. And they were basically running their, you know, typing their articles in Russian, running it through Google Translate or a similar type service. Obviously, that doesn't produce readable Swedish, right? <laughs> uh, so just nobody was reading it. Nobody was engaging. And they just thought, this isn't worth it. And so they packed up shop. I think in Scotland, they thought they'd have a much more fertile ground. You know, I myself and other colleagues, to be fair, it's not all down, not all my thing, this, but we have always kind of, we've attacked the Russian outlets at every turn, uh, often at great annoyance to people in our own uh, party and, and the wider Yes movement. But we felt it was an important thing to do. Uh, and I think, you know, we have just made it so poisonous. That's why you will never see kind of senior front bench SNP people go on Russia today. You will never see a Scottish government minister uh, go on any of these things because we have just made it so toxic. Um, and you have to keep working at that, right? Yeah, I mean, obviously, 
the former first minister has a show on Russia Today, Alex Salmond. I know he's persona non grata in the SNP now, but I mean, he ran the party for 20 years, you know, after Nicola yeah. Sturgeon. I mean, even before Nicola Sturgeon, he's perhaps the most recognisable individual associated with Scottish nationalism. I mean, what, what's your take on how he's ended up Maybe there? Mel Gibson, actually. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, Mel Gibson. <laughs> Nicola Sturgeon and Alex Salmond. Um, well, I, some of Mel Gibson's views may be uh, sort of in line with Maybe. Russia Today's... Well, um, welcome on Russia Today, yeah. 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 But what's your take on Alex Salmond then? Was he always basically a conspiracy theorist who uh, no. kept a lid on um, it, or, or has he ended up somewhere else? Um, I don't think he particularly cares, uh, to be honest. You know, he's he was offered whatever he was offered for the show. He says it was going to go to another broadcaster for whatever reason that didn't happen. Something about him having to go to the jungle. Um, and he's ended up on, on Russia Today. And, you know, he knows what Russia Today is. Of course he does. He's not a silly man. Um, and even if he didn't know when he started, he certainly knows now. And still it continues. And it, it breaks my heart. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't mind sharing. I remember when after the referendum, the day after when he stood down, just being in tears and thinking, because it just felt like the whole thing was collapsing, right? Everything was done. Um, and here was a man who was master of all he surveyed. And now he has a show that's broadcast on, on the Russia Today network. I mean, it's just, you, you couldn't write this tragedy, you know? It's an incredible move because even his harshest opponents in 2014 would have to accept was hugely influential a, a, an incredible political talent had almost delivered independence through sheer force of personality alone and had outthought and outwitted so many of his opponents over so many years um so even though you know my view always was that he'd slightly indulged conspiracy thinking but you know in 2014 i think he made claims that were ludicrous and were provably ludicrous and that that was kind of a sign that he was that way inclined but you know politicians get away with things in referendums and we know that from brexit but it, it still is incredible that this guy who was actually so credible for so long has so quickly lost all credibility and is now you know, he's running a rival party that basically got no votes in the Scottish elections. I mean, it must be, you describe it there yourself, you know, he was obviously to some extent a hero in 2014 and for obvious reasons I imagine isn't now, but are there others in the SNP who kind of, they must just be so confused by it. It must be so distressing for people to, you know, it would be like, I guess, imagine someone who thinks Tony Blair's really good. I don't know anyone who thinks imagine that. Imagine an individual who thinks that and then... Going through, seeing, you know, imagine if Tony Blair ended up on Sputnik or something like that. You'd be like, what? I, I kind of, it's so hard to wash off that old loyalty and to sort of, do you know what I mean? It's so difficult for people who went on that journey with him to now find him where he is. I mean, it just must be, it must kind of, it must be so, I, I don't know what the question is. I mean, if people sort of fully got used to it, I guess. Yeah, I think so. You know, he's 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 made his bed, and you know, he can lie in it, as my mother would say, and we'll get on with um, we'll get on with the project that we're we're committed to, and that's about you know, obviously, we've just gone through the Scottish election. The Scottish government has been uh, re-elected. We're in the sweet spot 
we, well, we'd like to have had the majority, but that was always difficult, obviously. But I think we're in a sweet spot and it's now, it's now on us to deliver this. And, you know, I think that the, you've heard me say before, I'm sure that the next referendum yes campaign needs to look, sound and feel different to the last one. Um, now, is that to say that the entirety of the last one needs, um, you know, shredded? No. Uh, but there are things um, that do need updating. There are things that we said then that we definitely can't and shouldn't repeat. Um, I'm happy to go into one example uh, in particular, uh, but if it looks, sounds and feels the same, we'll get the same result. Uh, and if it looks, sounds and feels like something that is a project that's only for the true believer, then nobody else will want anything to do with it. And the reality is we need people who voted no to now vote yes. I mean, so that's what I'm engaged in. Firstly, sounds like the Labour Party could do with listening to that. It's very sound advice that you get the same yeah. result from a from a losing campaign and that you have to bring people over. So when you say you're happy to give an example, what example would it be? So the, so the case I'm working on, and obviously won't surprise you or your listeners, is the defence spokesperson is, well, what does our defence posture look like? And how do we... How do we come up with a posture that's credible, that's realistic, and would meet the threats that that we would um, that we would face? And you might remember, if we go back to the 2014 campaign, uh, I think it was in 2013, if I'm not mistaken, uh, at a speech at the Brookings Institute in in Washington D.C., where it was claimed that Scotland would get automatic membership into NATO because Scotland was already in NATO by dint of being a member of the UK. I and mean, that's just not true. That's not how NATO uh, works. It's a bit like the EU. It's not how the EU works. Um, and I think the, you know, NATO remains a sensitive subject for many people who support uh, independence. My job is to, to work out how do we deliver the policy we have, which is to join it on condition of the removal of uh, the UK's nuclear weapons. And so what we then what we now need to put forward next time round is, OK, we're going to join NATO. NATO is a burden sharing military alliance in the North Atlantic. What does NATO membership mean for Scotland and what does Scottish membership mean for NATO? And, and you know, if it's a burden sharing alliance, which bit of the burden are we going to share? Uh, and how do you build up the capability you need to get to that point so that you are a, a country who aspires to NATO accession? And you have a reasonable plan to get there to become a to become a contributing NATO NATO member, rather than just saying, "Well, we'll get in because we're already in," or "We'll get in because geographically where Scotland's situated, it makes sense for us to be in." Now, yes, that's true, but there's a bit more to it than that. And so, I, the thing I would say about this as well is, you know, defence doesn't really win you any votes, right? I, I accept, I get excited about it, but I accept that. Most people out there, it, it's not the issue that they vote on. Some, yes, but not most. It can lose you votes, however, if you seem to not have thought things through. And I think there's another job, and myself and my colleague Alan Smith have been working on a project which we actually half-jokingly called Project No Surprises, and it's now taken a life of its own. The other part to this is what assurances do you give the international community and your nearest neighbour, England? You know, are we going to just be this awkward bit that hangs out north of Newcastle or are we actually going to take the alliances we want to join uh, seriously? And I think that the international community has a legitimate interest in understanding, OK, the Scots vote yes and then what? 
And one of the biggest issues they will want to talk about and want assurance on and want no surprises on is going to be our posture on defence and security issues. Just on that of, of NATO membership, obviously then you'd be in an alliance that was effectively protected by nuclear countries. Morally, what's the difference between having nuclear weapons as part of the UK and being protected by nuclear weapons as part of NATO? It's a good question. I mean, the first thing I would say is, you know, the the vast bulk, and you'll know this, the vast majority of, of uh, NATO members are, are non-NATO members. And, you know, the UK itself has signed up to the uh, in nuclear non-proliferation treaty. I'm going to have to get that right. Uh, and ultimately has an aim of a world without nuclear weapons. We just take a different view on how we get to that point. Um, I think on the, on the, to split this up a wee bit, I think the nuclear question will have to be dealt with separately almost to, to other defence cooperation issues. Of course, an independent Edinburgh is going to cooperate closely, probably closer than any other capital uh, with London. That's not just in our interest, it's in their interest. And it's vital that we get the nuclear issue dealt with uh, seriously. It will be our first big test as a, a new member of the international community. And it's in nobody's interest to get that wrong, certainly not ours. So we will negotiate uh, the removal of nuclear weapons, which the UK will want to do pretty quickly as well, right? It's not in their interests to host their sovereign capability in a foreign country, even if it is a friendly one that's you know on the same island. So they will want to do that at pace. What is as important as that is, where I think there's a big debate that's been lacking and what I want to try and force uh, a bit is, well, what does the rest of the security and defense posture look like? Where can we cooperate? How do we get into NATO? What are other countries looking for Scotland to do? Uh, are there specialisms we want to offer within these alliances? Perhaps something on maritime, military medicine, electronic warfare, you know, whatever it is. You know, the Danes are known for special forces um, specialisation. The Estonians are obviously known for their incredible cyber capabilities. What do we want to offer? And that's a debate that's been lacking. Uh, and it's a debate that I think, you know, I go back to defence doesn't interest a lot of people, but it interests me. It's a debate that I think is an interesting one for us to have. But undoubtedly, the nuclear question and the process by which we uh, remove Trident from Scotland and do it safely and calmly, it's the first big test we're going to face. So we need to get it right. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. The danger with this, isn't there, is that most people listening to this will want to live in a world without nuclear weapons. Most people on the planet want that. And it, obviously, coming from a Labour background, I know the, uh, <clears throat> the harsh contentions in this issue and where uh, many people far to the left of me have, have been far more pro-nuclear people like Nye Bevan. Is I mean, you Max, last... you're to, Max, you're to the right of Attila the Hun. <laughs> is that if you want to live in a world without nuclear weapons, unilateral nuclear disarmament is about as ineffective as a policy as you get. So... What, you know, if it, your report, so much of it is about Russia and Putin. Mm. Scotland playing its part in effectively destabilising the nuclear debate in the UK, or, or at least being a sort of nudge in the direction of unilateral disarmament. Really, there's only one benefactor from that, and it's not your allies, it's your enemies. Well, look... Again, go back to the point. Uh, Scotland votes yes, the UK will not want to host its nuclear weapons uh, in, in an independent Scotland, not, all, not just for its own strategic interests, but it's, diplomatically it would be quite an embarrassing thing uh, if that were to go on for any length of time. What matters is the process by which they go. Now, it needn't be destabilising. Uh, it needn't benefit any of, um, any of the countries who would be hostile to you know, open liberal democracies like Scotland uh, is and we can do that in such a way that doesn't compromise the safety and the security of the weapons because that's the last thing we want to happen we wouldn't want them to fall into the wrong hands or any of these things i think that once we once we negotiate that and negotiate that properly it's where it's really important that our conventional defense footprint and our broader defense posture is as realistic but also as strong as it can possibly be. And in terms of how you build yourself up to that point, and this is an idea I'll, I'll flesh out um, over the coming time, you know, we want to involve allied countries in that. So I think that, for example, when we have the early days of independence and we're building up that defence capability that we need to have, let's invite international partners to come to Scotland and almost not quite oversee, um, but almost kind of advise and, uh, and give a level of transparency to what we're doing as a new country, you know, why could we not have people from Canada, from New Zealand, uh, from Denmark, from London, uh, come into Scotland uh, and, and help, uh, yes, give a level of international transparency to what we are up to, but also help us get to a point where we can reasonably say we are a burden sharer in Europe and in the and in the. Uh, the Atlantic Alliance. So I think that, yes, nuclear is going to be difficult. Yes, nuclear needs cool and calm heads. The weapons will go. The weapons will have to go. The other bit that always gets missed out is how do you do the rest of your defence posture? And I think that's something we didn't put a lot of flesh on last time round. Although one thing I will say is that if you go back to the 2014 white paper, the section on defence was the only bit that had any money attached to it. So it was one of the most thought through bits of the white paper. I think we just didn't lean into it that much. And per look, perhaps it's not really a criticism of colleagues who did this before me. 
perhaps it's a recognition that it doesn't win you any votes, right? Or it wins you very few. Where I think we do need to get better is on the project, no surprises side, explaining this to the international community who, okay, we don't want them to involve themselves in a referendum. It's a matter for you know, the electorate in Scotland, but they have a legitimate interest in understanding where things are going to go. I spoke to, a, 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 I think I can call him a friend of yours, Tom Tugendhat, who's uh, chair yes, of the Defence yes, Select yes, Committee that yes. you're on. I know you guys get on. And he was... We do. Uh, I talked to him about the Russia report, and he was saying one of the elements of the reason why Putin wants was was trying to interfere in 2014, and effectively still, uh, you know, his interference in any future referendum would be in favour of independence is because it effectively destabilises a democracy that is a nuclear power that that is trying to tackle him. That actually, it's not even just about nuclear weapons. Campaigning on the side of Scottish independence suits the Putin national interest. So I, I understand that very surface level argument. Tom and I have uh, talked this through a lot uh, over over the years, usually with a glass of something strong. But so I, look, I get why people say that, right? It's a, the UK is a nuclear state. It's a G7 member. It used to be an EU member. Um, but what comes out of this at the end, what comes out of this at the end is a small liberal democracy that seeks to be in the European Union, seeks to be in NATO, will be an active member of the UN, that believes in international law, that will be voting to sanction countries who annex other countries, if you can see where I'm going with this. So the end result in this, I'm not convinced, is actually what, what, uh, what the Kremlin wants. I think the Kremlin's got Britain exactly where it wants it, out of the European Union, uh, less relevant on the world uh, stage, utterly compromised at home as far as its politics is concerned. And, you know, it's got the capital of the United Kingdom as, uh, what did the Russia report uh, call it, a laundromat for Russian money. I think he's got it exactly where he wants. But, but I have to challenge one thing again. Remember what the Russia report actually says, that the interference in 2014 came after the vote. Didn't come during it. Um, so, but look, will that be the case next time round? No, there will be interference. But do I think he's? Do I think Russia is necessarily trying to deliver one set outcome? No, that would go against everything that we know about Russia's activities when it involves itself in sowing discord. It's not to deliver a certain outcome; it's to cause as much chaos and confusion uh, as possible, which is what it's done all over Europe. It's what it's done in the US, um, and it's you know. It's what it does here as well. So the pur- the purpose of the report is to wake people up. Well, how do we how do we get alive to this, and how do we stop this sort of thing happening? Because I'm the first to say, of course, an independence referendum is an ideal event for foreign hostile states to get involved in. But we don't suspend democracy because autocracies might try and involve themselves. We make ourselves more resilient to ensure that democracy can take place. Because the minute you give that up, then they've won. Yes. I mean, from both major referendums we've had, the AV referendum didn't have this, I seem to remember, but (laughs) no one really cared. And it was kind of pre all this stuff, wasn't it? Um, Is that what it really feeds on this? And this is a Let's take Brexit. Let's take it away from Scottish independence. People believe it, they'll share it. If it suits their argument, they'll share it. And that applies to the bloke on the street, it applies to government ministers. People share all sorts of shit just because they go, actually, you know what? <laughs> Sounds like something. I don't. Actually, it comes from a root thing. I don't care whether it's true or not. Sharing this is going to help my cause. I mean, 
ultimately, how do you stop that? Well, look, I mean, people are people are going to share what they're going to share, um, aren't they? And you will always have, you know, politicians will always spin. And, you know, my report is not about dealing with political spin. It's about helping people navigate the information that's out there better. It's the best way of building that, building that information resilience up. And I think as well, we, we, I think we just as a society need to step back, uh, you know, and it's uh, too often, as, as the report talks about, you know, when we're stuck in these kind of feedback loops of our own views, we need more people to step away from that and read things that they don't agree with. Mm-hmm. Uh, really, and you know, I don't. I I, I read all kinds of newspapers. Um, I, I deliberately don't read all kinds of newspapers because I admire and value my blood vessels. Um, <laughs> but you shouldn't always want to read your own views just reflected back at you. Um, and is that a disinformation thing? Maybe, yeah, up to a point. Uh, but I'm all about how do we build the resilience so that when someone is just sharing something, even if it's not true people can better navigate uh, that environment where that happens, whether that's WhatsApps, Twitter, or where the real problems are, uh, quite often are in these private Facebook groups where yeah. people can't get, you know, you're, you're not in or whatever. And a lot of that's happening. I mean, if you go to Mexico or Brazil, it's not Facebook and Twitter that's the problem, it's WhatsApp and large WhatsApp groups. You know, this is what Bolsonaro understood in Brazil very, very early on the power of WhatsApp and just getting stuff out there very, very quickly. So the platforms change uh, depending on where you go, but the techniques don't really change all that much. So we need people to just be able to better navigate the information environment. I mean, where then do you draw the borderline between, and you made a distinction then between disinformation Disinformation and spin. So, Let's say there's another referendum campaign. I mean, the idea that that's going to be completely free. not It's not even disinformation that comes from Russia. It'll be homegrown yeah. stuff on all sides. I, I just don't see how when these things are so ferocious and people are just so motivated for their side to win and they will literally do anything. You know, they feel like missionaries yeah. for the cause. I just don't see how you stop them sharing stuff that's not true. And and who decides where the borderline is between something that's, you know, a bit of a cheeky... Take, for instance, the 350 million quid in the Brexit campaign. Now, is that disinformation? Is that spin or is that something else? It it was disinformation. It was a straight-up lie is what it was. Um, I think where you can say there is spin is all around the stuff, you know... um, you know, taking back control, for example, that was clearly a, a line of political spin. That can, I mean, that could mean anything to anyone. 350 million quid is a very specific promise uh, that has not come to pass. Um, so, I, you know, it, in terms of working out what's spin, what's fact, what's fiction, it's probably easier than you think. I accept entirely, however, where you have a problem is, well, how do parties and their activists conduct themselves? Now, there is another part to this, right? It's like, you know, I think too often we find ourselves in a position where parties are asked to condemn people who've said something bad on the internet. You know, Keir Starmer is no more responsible for every person with a Labour Party rose emoji than Nicola Sturgeon is for every person with a saltire or Boris with every person with a... Union Jack Tree or whatever the logo is. Yeah, whatever it is. 
you know, so I, I, I think there's a, you know, all of that can get a bit out of control in terms of somebody has said something bad and you must condemn it. Um, it get, becomes a bit of a joke. But we do need parties to subscribe to some standards and some rules on this. Take, and this is, for me, this is a very black and white issue, take deep fakes. You need all parties signing up to training party staff, election agents, candidates, um, you know, senior activists and constituency party office bearers on not sharing that kind of stuff. And I think that's where the, what the report goes into is getting political parties to better understand, well, what is fake news? What is disinformation? What is malinformation? What is misinformation? Am I, am I, am I boosting trolls? Uh, you know, and all that sort of stuff. We've all seen, I mean, I remember coming across a bot campaign quite recently where any time an SNP MP tweeted anything, it was getting automatic stuff back about Brexit. And it was the same tweet. And, you know, I did my thing. It's a very basic copy and paste the tweet into search. And you just see all of these bot accounts were just tweeting the same thing at me, at Ian Blackford, at Kirsten Oswald. Didn't matter what I tweeted about, didn't matter what time of the day I tweeted it, you would just get the same thing and all my colleagues would get it as well. And I've seen that happen to Labour MPs, Conservative MPs, and you just need your activists to, you know, and other people engaged in politics to recognise that kind of stuff. And just, if you're on Twitter, just slow it down a bit. Look at the case today. Um, look at the case today with the, the firing, the Russians saying they were firing on HMS Defender when it turned out no such thing had actually happened. But they got a video of themselves summoning the British defence attaché in Moscow to look all powerful and, you know, as though they were taking this mighty reaction against the against the Brits. It was a classic disinformation campaign that even, even the BBC has initially, at least, swallowed whole. Uh, so this isn't just for the, the, the plebs, right? This is for your big organisations uh, like the BBC uh, as well, and, and I've, I've argued, and a lot of people will recoil in horror when I say this, but the BBC and public service broadcasting is just so important in having a bulwark against this stuff. So when it lets itself down like that, you know, it's, 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 it's pretty damning and upsetting. Yes, and it will let itself down because it's run by human beings who are trying to do the of right course. thing and, and can't always. 100%, um, yeah. But it is. I mean, Mariana Spring during this camp, during COVID alone, they're disinformation report has been incredible i was like a, just as an individual i can't think of anyone who's done more to just calmly easily you know politely but just firmly constantly be out there targeting i mean really she's done the job that the government should have been doing on disinformation she's been so visible and so good you think and it's actually amazing here, right? this has fallen to the bbc yeah, and, and, and it's I think it's great that they've that they've appointed someone to do that, uh, you know, cover disinformation. Um, there's gonna be I, I suspect that they will have more posts like that going forward, unfortunately. Um, and I think that the there's a point in this, whether it's COVID or whether it was the stop the steal stuff in the US Capitol in January, you actually only have to be successful. If you're running a disinformation campaign, you only have to be successful with a relatively small proportion of the population. I mean, yes. you look at how many people were in Washington on that day compared to the 300 million, that you, it's a tiny amount of people. And a lot of that's homegrown QAnon type stuff as well. And if you switch it to COVID, if you could be successful in casting doubt to the point where say 
25 to 30 percent of the population of one country won't take the vaccine. I mean, you, th you think about that, then the Delta variant is not your problem. It's the next variant that's the problem. Um, so there are big, big issues on, you know, public health disinformation. Combine that with, uh, you know, the lack of international rules surrounding some of this stuff as far as social media disinformation is concerned. Add to that the kind of um, the quite aggressive vaccine diplomacy we've seen from countries like China and from Russia. You know, if the world is all about setting rules and standards and is all obeying them and living by them, the question of who gets to set the rules really, really matters. And in the case of COVID, it becomes a matter of life and death. Do you think political movements have been rigorous enough in tackling disinformation on their own side and openly saying, don't share that, and we're not going to share this? I know that they agree with us, and I know they're very passionate, but we have to draw a line, because I think one of the things that's really troubled people effectively from 2014 onwards is that whether it was the independence movement, whether it was elements of the Brexit debate, the Corbyn phenomenon, basically anything went. And movements were just appalling, not just at disinformation, but just in personal conduct. And I agree with what you say about you can't hold leaders accountable for everything that, you know, unnamed supporters might do online. But still, it feels as if, though, in the last few years, our leaders just, frankly, haven't been strong enough at curtailing some pretty unpleasant behaviour on all sides. I mean, is this something that, to take your side, for example, do you think the independence movement has a desire to deal with? Yes, um, I think that the First Minister in particular, you know, wants us to have as good and uh, spirited but respectful a debate uh, as possible. I think to, to, you know, this is a responsibility all of us have, whether you're the leader of that movement, party, whatever you want to call it, um, or you're a foot soldier or you're some kind of middle person or an, an MP like me, right? We all have the responsibility to do it. It's hard uh, because more and more politics is done online. And I mean, literally, Matt, I could tweet today is Wednesday and there's about a thousand people who just want to shout at me <laughs> down with this sort of thing, right? Um, and it's, it's, it's sometimes I think things can appear, especially on social media, much bigger than they actually are. I mean, we've all been the victim of a pylon at some point. <laughs> I think yours are on a weekly basis. <laughs> Your question is, you know, have movements and political parties done enough? The answer is no. And, and again, it's, it's partly addressed in the report where political parties need to think about how they deal with this. You know, they, we have to better train our election agents, our campaign managers, our candidates, our elected members, our local party constituency officials and activists on how do we do a good debate? And I, I think that there's a, you know, when you're the party of government and when you're the party that's aspiring to become the next member of the international community, you have a particularly acute responsibility uh, to do that. But we're not unique in not getting around to this, right? Everybody, we are playing catch up big time. Uh, and I think that beyond just membership organizations like political parties, uh, you know, I only half jokingly mentioned the National Trust, you know, but you think of the National Trust as a, it's a trusted brand, right? It's like the NHS is a trusted brand. Um, it's why the NHS counter disinformation campaign on the vaccine, which you know, involved people like Elton John, for example, it was just genius because it's such a trusted brand, it got good figures involved. 
And I think we have to think a bit more innovatively about, well, how do we use the National Library of Scotland, for example? You'll note in the report where it talks about Scotland should have an annual kind of, you know, anti-fake news day or whatever you want to call it, whereby we involve the NHS schools, Network Rail, you know what it? Well, I'm not sure. Scott Rail. Trust Network Rail, actually. <laughs> or, I certainly don't trust Scott Rail. <laughs> uh, but, the, but, you know, we, we have to think a bit more innovatively about how do we use um, trusted brands and people to counter this stuff? And that's what the Swedes and the Finns understood uh, very early and have understood very well. One of the nations that you mention in your report is China. And you talk about these Confucius Institutes and the danger of British universities effectively taking Chinese investment without asking too many questions. And then effectively, these institutes on, on British, on Scottish soil, uh, leading the debate in a, in, a, in a particular way, steering students away, you say, from discussing topics which might be politically uncomfortable to the Chinese Communist Party, such as Tibet, Taiwan, Tiananmen Square, and the Uyghur minority in uh, Xinjiang. This is something that I hadn't heard too many, you know, elsewhere. We often think about Russia and we think about Iran. But China's obviously having a huge influence here. Yeah, so the Confucius Institutes have been problematic. They're particularly problematic for Scotland because, as the report says, you know, we have more per head of population uh, than any other country um, in the world. And in Sweden so far, they're the only country to actually close down, the only European country to actually close down all their Confucius Institutes. And we haven't so much as had an audit of their impact. And if it's the case, well, we know it's the case that Confucius Institutes present a bit like the Goethe Institute, the German Goethe Institute, or the Alliance Francaise, or the British Council, for example. But we know it is there to, as the report says, you know, steer people away from the three T's, Taiwan, Tiananmen, and Tibet. Also make sure there isn't a discussion about the situation with the Uyghur minority or what's going on in Hong Kong. That's not academic freedom uh, and it's disinformation. And in, if you're an open society and a liberal democracy that respects these values, why would you allow that to happen in some of the best universities in the world? I mean, it's all for, all for some cash. So I think at the very least, we need to audit the influence and the reach of Confucius Institutes. I think that should be done independently of, of government. It's, it certainly shouldn't be done by by politicians, although we should form a view on these things. Uh, and I think that we, again, it's one of these issues where we've been uncharacteristically mute um, in Scotland about, in fairness to, um, I'm bound to mention David Leask at this point, a journalist in Scotland who has been writing about Confucius Institutes for, gosh, I think more than 10 years. Um, but too often, and, and it's, it's not a uniquely Scottish problem, although I mentioned the, the number of them we have, across the UK, you know, we've, we've just looked the other way. And I think it's about time that we call time on that. I mean, what's been remarkable about this and so many other things is the traditional view of kind of pro-Russian or pro-Chinese Communist Party sentiment at a UK level was basically, it was restricted to elements of the Labour Party maybe elements of the SNP, you know, that, that was kind of, there was a kind of left-wing kind of view of the Soviet Union. What it turns out actually is, as long as you give people money, you can buy loyalty anywhere. 
the, the, you know, Russian oligarchs going to Tory black and white dinners. As you say, London becoming a laundromat for Russian cash, London grad, uh, Alex Salmond ending up on RT, like N- Nigel Farage ending up on RT, like you can just just pay them enough and they'll do it. That's what's most incredible is that actually a line of defence against a lot of this should be a certain level of individual shame, which obviously stops a lot of people getting involved with these things. But actually, there are some people, left, right, centre, yes, no, leave, remain, that if you give them a few quid and you tickle their tummy, that's basically it. I mean, it's one of the saddest things to be reminded of that actually, and I guess it's what China's doing with those things, is as long as you give people money, they will magically find ways to not ask questions. Yeah, I mean, and it's it's it's. I mean, look, we are we are dealing with human beings, right? So this will always have currency. Uh, I think what we need to have a serious think about, and this isn't, you know, every liberal open society has to ask itself this question. You know, regularly ask ourselves what are our values and how do we how do we implement them? And you know. I accept people are free to go on Russia today, uh, but but I want you to feel like an idiot if you do, and feel some shame, actually, uh, if you do. And similarly, when it comes to Confucius Institutes, well, hang on a minute. What, are, what, what What's actually happening here to our own, you know, our own commitment to academic freedom, our own commitment to free inquiry, our own commitment to, um, you know, rigorous scrutiny of what's going on in the world by taking this cash and allowing these institutes to exist. Well, it's an assault on all of those values. So I think this is a useful time to stop. Uh, to, to the, the paper says the government should commission a, a, an, an audit of the information ecosystem in Scotland. So we know what, what is the actual reach of Sputnik in Russia today. We know it's actually not that much. Uh, that's why the Sputnik Edinburgh office is closed. Uh, but what is the reach on social media? What is the reach? Uh, what is the impact, rather, of of these of these Confucius institutes in our in our universities? Are there other more discrete um, ways that our information uh, ecosystem is being polluted that perhaps we're not that alive to? Probably. So that's why we need the audit, and it's what it's why it's a good time then to stop and think. Right, how do we build the resilience needed to ensure the best possible? Uh, free flowing of information amongst their own citizens so that in a time of crisis, i.e. a pandemic, that communication that is so vital uh, between state and citizen uh, can happen. And when you're trying to stop people from dying and save lives, that's what citizens expect. And look, I don't want to get down a, I've been accused by even some of my own colleagues of doing a whole reds under the bed, McCarthyist type thing. That's not where I'm at with this at all. Um, it, it's 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 such a mind-numbingly boring response. It is a problem, uh, and if it's a problem for every other country in Europe, I mean, look, we want to join the EU, who has a strategy on this stuff. What what, what would we do? Just say no, it's not for us. So we need to be realistic. Um, but at the same time, you know, this isn't about reds under the bed. This is just about ensuring we've got the resilience needed. Uh, going forward as this threat becomes more and more sophisticated. There'll be so there'll be people in the Kremlin so disappointed with you, Stuart, because they'll say, look, this guy's a radical from Glasgow. Uh, he's even got a beard. This is the sort of guy that 30, 40 years ago would have been pro-Russian. I'm not sure about that. <laughs> I'm not sure about that at all. But it's such a good beard. It was 
runner-up in Beard of the Year a few years ago. Why do you hate me? What? I, I don't know <laughs> you at all. <laughs> You've got a great beard, and I think, you know, coming yeah, second... I, I, is... lost, I, lost, I lost to Jeremy Corbyn. There you go. Maybe they Less interfered in that. Year. Maybe that's why you won. Ah, disinformation. <laughs> your beard's clear, but your beard's clearly better than his. You're just flirting with me now but, to make but me it feel is, better because I lost. But it's better groomed. You've got the you've got you've got the nice line at the sort of lower cheek comes down at a, a, a lovely angle. Better colour, better you're, blend. You're, you're 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 making me blush now. Well, I'm not saying I'm not saying that <laughs> I'm not here to sow disinformation about the result after the event. But I I was shocked shocked that you didn't win that, and I, I wondered if that still hurt. Yeah, well, what's the name of the actual par- parliamentary beard liberation or some something or other? It sounds far more remember. radical than I. I don't even think imagine. I've ever been. Have I been? No, no, I was in it again last year. I think actually, I didn't even come close last year. You don't get asked to go into these things. I should just add, it just pops up on your Twitter feed whenever they decide to run it. I don't even know who's behind it actually, uh, but it's all good fun. But it's, but it's a great beard. Um, I, I was going to start by. Um, just addressing the fact that this is the first episode of the podcast I've recorded since Scotland were very sadly knocked out of the Euros. But are you bothered? Well, I wasn't until I came on here. And what your listeners won't know is that you and I can see each other. You're sitting there with an England top on. So I've been triggered immediately. (laughs) (laughs) You know what? I've been wearing one every day during the tournament, a different one. I'm not sure if Ofcom cover podcasts, but I've complained (laughs) to someone. Um, Look, it would have been great to go through. Uh, As I said to you earlier, you know, I am the MP for Hampden Park, Scotland's national football stadium. Although I am not a follower of football at all, I still don't understand the offside rule. Uh, But inevitably, you know, when we beat England at the weekend, that was nice. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) And then it would have been nice to get through uh, last night, but it wasn't to be... And there is always the World Cup. And if we don't manage that, then there is always Eurovision after we get independence. Yes, there is Eurovision, absolutely. <laughs> but Which will be easier for you, not under the UK I banner one feels. In a competition mired by political voting, you, you may we well get be, a sort of... We should, um, we should do all right. We should do all right. Independence. But it must be cool being the MP for Hamden then, because you could get tickets and stuff. It's the, it's the first thing that uh, people say to me. I don't think I've ever actually gone to any of the uh, I've gone to any of the games. That what? Been, actually, um, sure. No, I'm. I, I mean, I, 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 as I say, I'm not really a follower of uh, football. My partner's always uh, upset when I tell him that uh, no, we are not going to, you know, whatever it might be at Hampden Park because he is into football. But uh, no, it's never been a. It's never been a. I think I've gone to, and right next door to Hamden, of course, is um, is Queen's Park Football Club, the oldest right. football club in Scotland, who That's I helped right. save. Uh, if it was the case that the if Murrayfield almost became the national football stadium, which you know the idea of Edinburgh getting anything, you know, I mean that's worse than England getting something, you know. That's why Sputnik uh, left because they couldn't <laughs> yes, get an office in Glasgow and they couldn't bear to be in Edinburgh a minute longer. Uh, so yeah, no, Queen's Park are much more worthy of uh, of being involved in. But I think the Scotland team have done is proud, and you know it was it was good fun whilst it lasted. Albeit it didn't last that long. Oh, it was great fun, and I really thought you were going to do it, and really wanted you to do it. Um, 
But Hamden, if people haven't been, is great. I don't know if you've been to the Scottish Football Museum at Hamden. Absolutely. It's amazing. It's such a good visitor attraction. As well as being a great stadium to have a tour of. And it's fantastic to see it hosting games at the tournament. Yep. Um, So who does your partner support? Uh, Well, Scotland, obviously, but he's a Celtic fan. Which is controversial. I'm actually from a more Rangers supporting family. But well, I knew as that. I, say, I couldn't. I couldn't tell you the first. I couldn't even tell you who the cur- any current Rangers or Celtic players are. You got Stephen Gerrard as your manager. You're true. Get, yep. To I give you an what, idea, right? To give you an idea, the last time I was at a Rangers game, Basil Bowley was playing, <laughs> playing for Rangers. Now you will know when that was. Yeah. I'm sure. Yeah. I think I was about 90s. nine, maybe. That was yeah. like mid nineties. So right, so I was younger than nine then. Yeah, because he it was, was a long um, time ago. He, I mean, this is just one of those things. He headbutted Stuart Pearce in Euro '92. Um, I just sort of remember that as an incident. Basil Bowl. But if you're talking about disinformation, get Gerard on board. What a great thing to have the old firm sign up to, and then you could just go to loads of free football matches. Yeah, I, I, I just, I just, I stay away from it. I don't understand it. It's, it's. You've got to. I don't even know the offside rule. Come it's on. so easy to understand. You just score more goals than the other people, or in case yeah, you're in Scotland, don't score any goals <laughs> at all, and then somehow we all have to kind of go home happy. But just selfishly for you, this is what you should be doing with this report: is get Stephen Gerrard on board, get Celtic on board, get like the hydro on board, and then you just basically, how do you get free stuff? This is how you have to think about these things. This is what other MPs are doing. Matt, I'm in, I'm in politics to serve my constituents. Come on. No, will... no, 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 this carpet-banging nonsense. <laughs> you know, I laughed at the end when I remember, was it AOC, I think? She was sent, uh, she, uh, she was sent free tickets to like a Beyonce concert or something. It might not have been AOC. I might just be... Um, I, I might be libeling her now, but it's this, this amazing thing about the Americans, you know, they get, their legislators get tickets to Beyonce. And I remember when I get elected, Sky News sent me a mug and some shortbread, <laughs> you know, which I still use the mug, actually. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's, there you go. That's, a, that, that's the extent of the lobbying I get. Well, I just think the stuff like this, I, I think you can make a genuine case that it would be very important to have People like Andy Robertson involved. You know, him and Marcus Rashford have done that campaign for BT about stop online hate. Yeah, Get Rashford and Robertson involved. Say, look, guys, let's Good. just extend this. But it sounds well, like you don't is... want football tickets. So what do you want tickets to? Uh, probably the final Elton John tour, which I'm, I'm horrified. I'm probably, you know, probably going to miss when I happen. I mean, I've seen it about a hundred times. Or the next Shania Twain concert. Would be quite good. Get Elton Never John got involved. To the last one. Get Elton John well, involved. He did the NHS campaign, like you say. I'm sure Elton yeah. is uh, passionate about tackling disinformation in Scotland. I'm sure. I'm sure. Yeah, no, that's a good idea. But it's there's a serious point in this. This is in Sweden. They got celebrities involved in their counter disinformation campaigns. So there's a it's you know trusted people who you can get to do this stuff. So, but you're just trying to work out what can I get for free that's kind of good that. I might happen to invite you along to the next time you're in the Allison Arms. Oh, <laughs> yes. Of, of course I am. Of course listen, I am. I'm not, I'm not buttoned up the back, you know. <laughs> well, I was <laughs> just thinking. time at the Rodeo. If you can, I mean, I've never been to an old firm and I'm desperate to go. In fact, I want to do one at Hamden, one at Ibrox, one at Parkhead. I'd love to see it in all three of its incarnations. 
So if I if I give you this idea and then you get them involved, and then you go, oh, actually, when I get invited to sit on the halfway line with you know the FA SFA guys, oh, maybe I should bring Matt along because he suggested it. I'll give you and Gordon the tickets if that ever happens. You like Gordon a lot. He's a nice guy. <laughs> well, there you go. Me and Gordon can go. <laughs> that sounds like uh, a deal. No, I, in, in you know, 34 years as a Glaswegian, I have never even been to a Rangers and Celtic match. But I'm like I, the worst Ouija possible. <laughs> <laughs> that makes more sense, doesn't it? The more people I know in Glasgow, they're the, the people who don't like it, Really don't you the the people most for and against the old firm are, are found in the same city, aren't they? Is that yeah. you know for the fans of those clubs it's amazing. For everyone else, I mean it is a bit of a nightmare. From afar, I think English fans really enjoy its intensity and there's no rivalry like it south of the border. But I know for a lot of people who live there, they they're slightly tired of it. But as a football fan, I would love to. I'd love to go. Just enough intensity that there's no trouble. Wouldn't that be ideal? <laughs> Is that possible? Be, yeah, we've I've wanted that my whole life, Matt. <laughs> <laughs> well, luck. hopefully we can talk about this over a pint in the Allison Arms, which listeners, if you don't know, is on the south side of Glasgow and having one of the best pubs in the world. It's fantastic. Uh, it's got a fantastic beer selection, as you know, the the fridges at the back with all the various uh, European beers. Oh, man, Amazing. the German pilsners they've got in there. And what's amazing about this pub, apart from the fact that it's well run and it's friendly and it's in a great part of town and, every, you know, you have a really good laugh in there and they do some really funny nights there. The beers are in this huge fridge and you basically just help yourself and then yep. tell the truth at the bar, which I've always done. I'm sure you've done the same as well. But you do think this is a remarkable respect for its customer base to just go, yeah, take one out of the fridge, pay on the way past. You think, I've, I've never seen that in a pub before. It seems to work, though, you know. It seems to work. So, no, when we're all back to normal and we don't have social distancing, because for the Alice and Alice to be good, you need it to be busy and you know, all crammed, passing each other and all the rest of it. And you and I will do our... I don't know, uh, what will we do? Uh, we'll do a Kenny and Dolly on the karaoke <laughs> after a couple of a couple of lashifts. Oh, man. Well, there'll be people now, go- you know what, I'll put a link to the Ellison Arms, should people, people in Glasgow will know, but people further afield might not be aware of its wonderful charms. Um, and then maybe, maybe we could have a political party night out. Maybe we could, Stuart McDonald could do an, an evening on disinformation at the Allison Arms with Stephen Gerrard and that new Celtic manager. <laughs> and we'll all, we'll all get on and we'll have people from yes and no and leave and remain, the old firm, and it'll be in one pub, the, the very best of all sides of every debate. You are off your rocker. <laughs> I've been drinking out those fridges. I'm not even sure Coffee Anan would attempt to do that kind of thing. <laughs> Well, okay, we'll start small, just just me and you, and uh, if yeah, we just, can get just, on. Just me and you, yeah, we'll get on fine, we'll get on fine. Stuart, it's been an absolute pleasure, thank you so much for coming on. Thanks for having me. Well, there you go, Stuart MacDonald, if you live on the south side of Glasgow, or indeed, even if you don't, you have to check out the Allison Arms, it is a cracking pub, and maybe... If you ever see him in there with Stephen Gerrard, I mean, the odds of this happening obviously are so remote, but who knows? Him, Stephen Gerrard, and uh, the new Celtic manager, whose name escapes me, the Australian dude. Um, if you see them in there, what an email that would be. Politicalpartypodcast at gmail.com. Um, thank you so much for downloading this. Thank you for leaving reviews. They do help. 
get this show up the charts so that other people can um, listen to it. And I hope you're all enjoying the Euros. I've deliberately not mentioned football. Have I at all? Oh, maybe I had a little Glenn Hoddle line at the start. But um, I know for a lot of you, this will be a blessed relief. If you don't like football, it must drive you mad, let alone the COVID implications. Maybe that's a discussion for another day. Um, as someone who loves football, obviously, I'm uh, having a wonderful time, um, as long as England's in the tournament. But um, yes, I, I've deliberately kept the podcast until now football free because um if you are trying to avoid the football you don't want it getting places like this but there are obviously political elements that maybe at some point we will discuss but thank you for downloading this and uh, yes email the show political party podcast at gmail.com with either your uh funny stories about awkward encounters with politicians or indeed if you can get me semi-final or final tickets do let me know see you soon ta Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.